And thank you for joining us for this episode of Sustainability and Resilience. This is an optimistic sustainability podcast inspiring collective changes for a more sustainable world. I'm Kate Cheney here with co-host Brian Perkins. Hello. Our topic today is Chesapeake Bay and its iconic bivalve, the Atlantic Oyster. Chesapeake Bay has always been known for its abundance of the oysters. However, over the last two centuries, Chesapeake Bay has lost 99% of its oyster population. Today, the 1% that remains stands as a strong symbol of hope. This story will show how collaboration across industries and jurisdictions can change the outlook of a precious and dwindling resource. Today, our sources include the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, the Chesapeake Bay Program, NOAA Fisheries, the Mariners Museum, the Maryland Department of Natural Resources, the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science, and an article titled A Remarkable Recovery for the Oysters of Chesapeake Bay by Rona Coble. All of these sources have links and will be posted to this episode's blog page at sustainabilitypod.com. Most of the oysters you see are farmed in aquaculture because worldwide oyster reefs have declined by more than 90%. As one of the only places left on earth where oysters can still be found in the wild, Chesapeake Bay's native oysters are still holding on. Before the 19th century, the oysters were so plentiful, people harvested by simply wading into the water to pick them off the rocks. The Chesapeake Bay watershed was historically managed by native Algonquin-speaking people, who included over 15 tribes, nine of which were united as the Powhatans. Now known as the largest estuary in the United States, Chesapeake Bay watershed spans six states and includes multiple cities. Over 150 rivers feed into the bay from a drainage basin that's over 64,000 square miles. Looking at it on a map, it looks like a hand with fingers if the rivers feeding into the bay were the fingers. The Chesapeake Bay was always been a place of rich culture and natural resource. After explorers made contact in 1607, the value and abundance of the area's oyster resources were realized, and colonial resource exploitation soon took place. By the turn of the 20th century, year 1900, oyster overharvesting was at a brutal high level. Over one billion oysters a year were dredged from the bay floor. There was even a brief but violent oyster war that was fought by the state of Virginia against dredgers that disregarded the harvesting laws. This war and the rapid expansion of the oyster industry brought new legislation aimed at protecting the oysters and commonwealth's underwater resources. Laws on dredging practices were very basic at first, but over time these laws would become critical to the oyster's survival.
Dredging left the oysters with little ability to repopulate. Oysters stick together with a cement-like bond. Over the generations, the oysters grow larger and create what's known as an oyster reef. Much like coral reefs, these oyster reefs provide dense structures that create habitat for other oysters and many other sea creatures. Dredges drag large nets that scoop the sea floor, and dredging, along with over-harvesting, greatly diminished the oyster reefs. Then, in the 1950s, further devastation struck with the introduction of new diseases. These were fast-spreading parasites and bacterial outbreaks that caused massive die-offs. Harvesters were said to have lost another half of their haul from these diseases. Overharvesting and diseases were soon met with a third sad and compounding factor, murky, gross water. Oysters clean water by filtration. They are filter feeders and naturally filter algae, sediment, and chemical contam contaminants from the water. Oyster die-offs meant unfiltered water, and murky water negatively impacted the area's ecosystem health as well as the local economy that depended on that ecosystem. For example, waterfowl hunters and fishermen were also concerned about the oyster decline because they too had diminishing harvests. Oysters are keystone species, and the entire ecosystem depends on them. Farmers miles inland had grown to depend on these oysters for massive amounts of filtration needed to clean the polluted water that ran off the farms and emptied into the bay. They needed the oysters to filter their wastewater, but the oyster population had been greatly reduced and could no longer keep the waters clean. During this time, Technology advancements in the agricultural industry changed the way farmers fertilized, tilled, and managed pest control. Runoff from these farms was full of sediment, chemicals, and nutrients such as nitrogen and phosphorus that made large dead zones, or death clouds, in the bay. These dead zones were found in brackish waters where the nutrient-dense runoff caused rapid blooms of life near shore. Organisms in the water died from eutrophication, leaving a hypoxic or no oxygen zone. Just one dead zone could suffocate an entire oyster reef and school of fish at a time. To make matters worse, oysters' main habitat in the bay were these same brackish waters where the dead zones were forming. It's brutal to think of the devastation to such a vibrant area. Unfortunately, after these oyster die-offs, invasive species now had an easier time establishing in the newly available space. The rapid distribution of species like the zebra clam brought on another severe decline in oyster population, and harvest rates hit an all-time low. By the time of the 21st century, wild oyster populations would drop to less than 1% of levels historically known. The subsequent cascade of problems following over-harvesting, reef destruction, pollution, disease, and invasive species impacted the livelihoods of all people in the area. 
The oyster fallout, or oyster apocalypse, affected the entire economy built by oyster harvesting. To stop the oyster decline, in 1993, an oyster roundtable was formed, comprised of leaders from around the community. They created an action plan for oyster recovery that was a catalyst for change. Being the largest polluter in the bay, the agricultural industry made many changes to practices. Oyster-friendly changes were made across agriculture. To reduce runoff pollution, farms started to use conservation tilling and updated to more efficient irrigation methods while utilizing fertilizer management plans. Streamside fencing was also installed to keep livestock and their waste away from stream edges, and absorbent forest buffers were planted along the streams to reduce polluted runoff further. Aquaculture farms growing oysters in the bay also increased, cleaning the water and increasing the yearly oyster harvests. Funding was gathered and dispersed to meet milestones of wild oyster recovery. Postage stamp style oyster sanctuaries that spot the bay's shores were created where oyster harvesting is now completely illegal. These areas became protected from illegal poaching as law enforcement were authorized to patrol for and prosecute poachers. Sanctuaries were and remain critical to the recovery of the oysters because of the need for the formation of oyster reefs. Thriving oysters means reefs of adult populations creating offspring larvae naturally in the bay. Along with oyster repopulation, oyster reefs are critical to the entire ecosystem. To aid the natural formation of oyster reefs, reef restoration began to provide the physical structure that oysters need to thrive. To do this, large 300-pound Hollow concrete structures called reef balls were used to create artificial reefs and deter poaching by blocking dredges. These structures remind me of wiffle balls and look impressive when they are covered by adult oysters. Along with restoring the reef structure, people are also oyster seeding. This is known as spat on a shell and is where used oyster shells are seeded with larvae in a tank, then released back into the environment. Instead of chipping and selling used shells, groups get shells from restaurants, businesses, and manufacturers to seed with larvae and release. The Oyster Recovery Partnership promotes that they've planted around 8.5 billion juvenile oysters back into the waters. This is a fascinating sustainability effort, and we're not covering all of the recovery efforts that include things like residential pollution control and restaurant industry changes. There are several organizations in our sources on our website that have great information if you want to find out more. With the rebound of the oyster, Chesapeake Bay also saw a rebound of clear waters seagrass, shrimp, fish, crabs, birds, and other wildlife. Many other organisms depend on oysters for habitat, filtration, and as part of the food chain. Oyster recovery meant seafood industry recovery as well. The oysters brought life with them when their habitat was restored. 
the subsequent environmental improvements led to more developed oyster economy, which also enriched the lives of the millions of residents living near the bay. It is estimated that the oyster restoration efforts have produced more than $22 billion annually. Harvests of wild and aquaculture oysters are stable and continue to steadily increase over time. Saving the oysters took efforts from the entire community, from large institutions down to countless individuals across a huge geographic area. Over the following decades, collaborative efforts have grown to include diverse groups of stakeholders that all cooperate with each other across industries and jurisdictions. Now at the round table, there are leaders from business, fishery management, agriculture, conservation groups, government, nonprofits, research facilities, educational institutions, healthcare facilities, and citizen groups. Today, the Bay is a model of collaboration of society, showing the world how resilient humanity and the environment can be. This is a heartbreaking story. However, scientists believe that by working together, we can reach a tipping point where recovery efforts increase exponentially, rapidly outpacing the limiting factors we experience today. With all these restoration efforts going on, I'm sure you as listeners are wondering what you can do to help support the restoration efforts. For one thing, you can eat oysters and support local oyster aquaculture farms. You can consider recycling oyster shells so it can be used to build new reefs, and you can find local oyster recycling programs online. You can volunteer with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's Active Oyster Restoration Program by building reef balls and cleaning shells. You can also become an oyster gardener. Anyone with access to the water can raise oyster larvae at home through programs like Maryland Grows Oysters or the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. You can also spread the word to your neighbors and friends about how important oysters are to the health of waters and wildlife in the bay. Communicate with members of Congress, senators, and local government that clean water is important and urge them to support clean water legislation that limits pollution and funds oyster recovery. Reduce pollution from your home, backyard, school, or business. The most effective pollution reduction would be reducing runoff that has fertilizers, pesticides, or sediment. What we've learned from this story can be replicated and used around the world to restore watersheds and preserve natural resources for future generations. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode and want to stay tuned for more, please rate us, download, and subscribe. Check us out on Instagram and at sustainabilitypod.com. Join the listener write-in program and share your own story, challenges, or successes. We will share them in our listener story episodes. Email us at sustainabilitypod at gmail.com. It is our goal to empower you to know what choices are sustainable and why. Together, our collective actions 
have monumental impacts on the world. If you would like to be a supporter of the show, you can donate to our Patreon. We appreciate your donations that go towards supporting and continuing this show.